0: Well, a few months ago, I was uh, asked a great question by someone who was interested in learning a little bit more about Rock Valley Bible Church. And um, I heard this question and I answered it, and um, as I thought about my answer, I really, really wasn't satisfied with it so much. I talked with my wife about it a little bit, and she said, well, you know, is that really right? And I kind of thought about it a little bit. and. Really been pondering this question really for the past several months because it is such a such a good question to be asked and such a good question to be answered and it's a, a question really I'd like to answer today. Um, you say what's the question? Here's the question that was asked me, something like this. It says, "As a pastor of Rock Valley Bible Church, what types of things would you like to see from those who come to your church?" I mean, the heart of the question really is getting at the the root of my desire as a pastor for the the people of the church. And uh, what is it that characterizes you all, or what is it that I would like to see as a characteristic of the people here at church? And so this morning, I'd like to take this opportunity to answer this question for you all. And really, because of all mornings, this New Year's Eve morning is a great opportunity to answer such a question, because New Year's Eve is really a time it's a good time really to look back at what took place this past year, take inventory of your life, and you think about the, the year to come. It's a good opportunity for you really to evaluate things of coming of the new year. Oftentimes people make resolutions. Right? Some people say, I want to lose some weight, or I want to get out of debt in 2007, or I want to quit a bad habit, or I want to spend more time with my family this year. And um, sadly, oftentimes those things are broken within a week or a month. Um, but I want to give you some things this morning that I think ought to characterize us as a church. And you might easily take them and then reword them a little bit and transform them into resolutions for 2007 in, in your life. And, and my heart is that these things wouldn't, um, wouldn't be broken after a week or after a month, but that they would carry through throughout all of 2007 And rather than simply giving you these characteristics, I want to ground them in a text of Scripture. And the text of Scripture I want to ground them in is found in Matthew chapter 22. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 22. We're going to look particularly at verses 34 through 40. very, Very famous, familiar verses to us. And yet there's nuggets here of great truth that we can dig out, I'm sure. These verses come in the context of Jesus being taken a task by the religious leaders of the day. Various groups had gathered against Jesus and sought to trap Him in what He had said. The first group was a political group coming, asking a political question, talking about taxes and paying taxes. And their hope was that they could trap Jesus into saying something which He could get in trouble with the government. Jesus passed that test. Verse 22 says the people were amazed as they went away. The second group that came was a liberal group. These were Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection and they tried to ask Jesus a theological question about the resurrection, attempting to demonstrate how foolish Jesus really was in believing the resurrection. And again, Jesus answered them greatly. And verse 33 says that the crowds who heard this were astonished at his teaching. And now comes the third group to trap Jesus. This time it was a a theological group from the conservatives of the day, a Pharisee. One who's a lawyer, right? An expert in the law came up. He's probably one of the top theologians of the land. The idea was give, it, give the smartest guy in the land to ask Jesus right, a real tough question. And then to see perhaps maybe you can trap him in that. And the story picks up here in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together, one of them, a lawyer, asking him a question, testing him. teacher. Which is the great commandment in the law? A trap had been set, trying perhaps to have Jesus prioritize one command, and in prioritizing this one command, maybe they could find fault in his theology someplace, as he would by nature really neglect other commands. But the answer of Jesus was masterful, and um, I'm sure everyone was amazed after he answered the question. He said to them, verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. Jesus boiled the entire teaching of the Old Testament down to two commands. To love God and to love Others. The first command comes from a, a very famous passage of Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, that the Jews of that day knew very well. In fact, today in our generation, at many, many services, when Jewish synagogues gather together across the world today, these quote, words are quoted by memory from the congregation often. And I wouldn't be surprised back then. It's every time, right? People gathered together for any kind of worship service. These words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and on your, all your mind. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if these words were repeated every service that they had in the days of Jesus. They were well known. The second command, coming there in verse 39, is taken from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which the Jews also would have known very well. It's a a cornerstone teaching of the Jewish people would have been back then. In fact, one of the famous rabbis, Rabbi Hillel, was challenged by a a Gentile one time. He says, you guys have so many rules. Could you stand on one foot and tell me the whole law? (laughs) Kind of trying to ridicule him that by the time he'd get through everything, right, he'd be tired. And Rabbi Hillel stood on one foot and he said this. He said, what is hateful to you do not do it to anybody else. This is the whole law. All the rest is commentary. With that, he put his foot down, explained the whole law, and did a masterful job at it. He was exactly right. He put a negative spin on what Jesus put here, right? Whatever's hurtful to you, don't do that to other people. But what Jesus said here is exactly the same. It's the heart. They knew this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus took two very well known commands. And in in coupling them together, um, Jesus even wasn't unique in coupling these two things together. There was a a man who came in Luke chapter 10, which we'll get to at the end of my message today, a man coming to Jesus looking for eternal life. And uh, Jesus said basically the same question. He said, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus turned it back on him. And he said, what do you think? How does the law read? And he quoted these things. Luke chapter 10, verse... um, 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And in verse 28, Jesus said, yes, he answered correctly. So these, these two verses are oftentimes even linked together. This wasn't novel of Jesus. It was a common teaching of the land. But what is particularly helpful about these two particular commands that, that caused many people in the land to look at them as, as a priority in that day is that they both speak of a superlative love. In other words, they both speak of a love that is complete, that goes to the nth degree. Regarding a love for God, it is to be maximized. It is to be complete. Jesus said it involves all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. Now, you can try to figure out what the difference is there between our heart and our soul and our mind. And you might say, well, the heart, that's kind of like our being and our soul is our feelings and our mind is our intellect. You might say that and you'd have some truth there but regardless of how you slice it and dice these things what it means our whole person we need to love god with our entire self it needs to be total and complete all day every day all out nothing should should back cause us to back down from our love to god it should be as they say today 24 7 365 all day every day all out we should love God completely. We should love Him continually. We should love Him absolutely. A 50% love for God doesn't satisfy this command. 75% is not good enough. 95%, 99.9% doesn't fulfill this command. It is all, everything, strength, everything we have, expressing our love to God. Nothing but the entire, full, complete, total love for God fulfills this command. And in a similar way, right? This uh, command to love others is superlative as well. It's equally exhaustive. It goes to the nth degree as well. But rather than using superlatives, like all your heart and all your soul, Leviticus 18 uses a comparison. It is a a simile. As yourself. You shall love them as you love yourself. The assumption here is that we love yourself. And I know, because you are people, that you all love yourselves a lot. You love yourselves a lot. You care for yourself. You take great pains to care for yourself. If you are hungry, you eat. If you are thirsty, you drink. If you itch, you scratch. If you tire, you sleep. If you are cold, you put a coat on. If you're hot, you take your coat off. Maybe search for a fan. Turn on the air conditioner. If you're injured, you care for your injury. Even my daughter yesterday got a sliver. Just teeny, teeny, teeny. And all her whole life was focusing around this little, little sliver that came there because she loves herself. When you desire something, you pursue what you want. If you want something, you work hard to get what you want. If you can't get it, James says that you fight and quarrel many times to get what it is that you want. Ephesians 5.29 says it well. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. And Jesus says this. It comes down to this. To the extent that you want to satisfy and you seek to satisfy your own wants and desires, so seek to satisfy the wants and desires of other people. If your neighbor is hungry, this kind of love will get up, go get some food, and bring it and serve before this person. If your neighbor is thirsty, love will get up, prepare a drink, of cold lemonade, and bring it to somebody. If your neighbor is cold, love will give a coat. If your neighbor is hot, love will bring a fan. If your neighbor is hurt, love will tend to his wounds. And that's the extent of this command here, to love your neighbor as yourself. Nothing but entire, full, total, complete love for your neighbor fulfills this command. And when you take both of these, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, you put these two things together and it forms a complete whole. In fact, even as Jesus said here in verse 40, on these two commandments depend or hang, depending upon your translation, the whole law and the prophets. In other words, every command in the Old Testament, and we could include the entire Bible as well, in some way can be traced back to one of these two commands a command in the Bible either manifests your love for God or it manifests your love for your neighbor. Right? Many have pointed out how the Ten Commandments do this. Right? The first half, focus on the love for God. second half, loosely, focus on the love for man. Right? The first commandment. right? You shall have no other gods before me. If your love is completely for God, there's no room for other gods. You shall not make for yourself an idol. The second commandment. If your love is completely towards God, you're not going to make an idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's a third commandment. And loving God means that you're going to honor Him with your name. Or take the second half, like like the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. That's focused upon a a human level. If you love others yourself, you're not going to kill them. Or the seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. Love for a neighbor is not going to defile a marriage in that way. Or the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to take what is theirs. And these two principles you can apply them to all sorts of laws in the Old Testament all the laws regarding the sacrifice offered to God for sin are merely a manifestation of love for God right God I love you but I have um, I've messed up and I've sinned and you've told me to sacrifice and so I'm sacrificing because I want to please you for those laws in the Old Testament that express and protect the rights of slaves and widows and orphans that's really an expression of love towards neighbors that's how we ought to act and and these are the two great loves that each of us ought to have. And as a pastor of this church, it's my desire that these loves would be cultivated in our lives in 2007. These are the things that I would love to answer that question, really to, um, to characterize the people of Rock Valley Bible Church. So if I asked that question again, what, what would I desire of people of Rock Valley Bible Church? I think I'd say, hey, it's my desire to see them love God and love other people. Well... That's kind of my exposition this morning. That's an exposition of these verses. I want to transition this point of my message into application. Because I want to take these two loves and apply them four different ways. My message this morning is entitled, Two Loves in Four Ways. Right, the two loves here refers to the loves that Jesus gives us and answer to this question and the four ways point to the four points of my outline that i have for you this morning i want to take the first command of jesus to love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength and show two ways in which that love ought to manifest itself and then i want to take this command to love your neighbors yourself and show two ways in which that command ought to manifest itself so we have two loves of god in four ways And in fact, the next time I'm asked this question, I'm going to expand upon this and talk about the four ways in which we can love the Lord our God and love our neighbors herself. You can easily take these and transition them, transform them into your own New Year's resolutions. That would be a great thing to do. Here's my first point of application. Point number one, love Jesus Christ. Love Jesus Christ. At Rock Valley Bible Church, we believe in the triune God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. I don't begin to understand it, but that's what the Scripture teaches. That God is one, but there are three persons within the Godhead. And such, my application to you to love Jesus Christ is really another way of instructing you to love God. Because, in fact, Jesus is God. But when you say love Jesus Christ, it puts some, it puts some reality in. Into your thinking because there's seemingly more substance that we can think of. When we think about Jesus, all of a sudden it changes things. Like, for instance, at the beginning of the Bible, the very first verse says that God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says that Jesus Christ is the creator of the earth. So you can read back in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, Jesus Christ created the heavens and the earth. Kind of gives you a different a different twist to Joel. To it's not it's not God some ethereal thing out here. All of a sudden it's it's one we know, we've seen, we've interacted with. Jesus Christ. The apostles handled him, they tasted him, they touched him. In Isaiah 43, God says, I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. And yet Titus repeatedly calls Jesus Christ our Savior. And, and we can think that as we worship God our Savior, we ought to think in our minds even, we worship Jesus Christ, our Savior, who is God as well. Later in Isaiah, God declares, My glory I will not give to another. And yet the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. And so as we see Jesus, we see the glory of God. Jesus Christ is God. And when you see Jesus Christ, you see God. When you see Jesus Christ, you come to understand God. That's the first chapter of the Gospel of John says this, right? The Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And the great reality of seeing Jesus walk on the earth was that His role was to explain the Father. He was to explain God to us. And so as we worship Jesus, we worship God. As we love Jesus, we love God. And the application really comes. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? then you will love Jesus Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus instructed His disciples on the necessity of loving Him. To the twelve, He said, He who loves father or mother more than Me is not worthy of Me. He who loves son or daughter more than Me is not worthy of Me. Right? In other words, the implications. The disciples are saying, He's saying to His disciples, You need to love Me beyond anybody else. Have your love for Me be supreme. And after Simon Peter had fallen, denying the Lord Jesus three times, Jesus restored and pressing, Simon, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Like, that's an important thing for Peter to love Jesus. Crucial to a life that loves God is a life that loves Jesus Christ. And central to a love that loves Christ is the cross of Christ. You know, perhaps earlier as so I spoke to the extent of which God demands our love towards Him, it may have been the case that your heart began to sink a little bit. When I say you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, you might say, yeah, I can't do that. And to be quite frank, the command in Scripture to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength isn't good news. That's not good news. Because the reality of our lives is that we don't love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. And where the truth be known, many of us don't even come close to loving Him to the extent to which He calls us to. And that command shows us our sin, right? The greatest sin is to break the greatest commandment. If this is the greatest commandment, we all are transgressors of the greatest sin. And none of us ever reach this 100%, 24-7, 365, we... We're all great sinners in need of a Savior. And apart from the sacrifice of Christ and the cross, we perish in our sins. But see, that's where we can love Jesus because Jesus is the Savior. It's through His work upon the cross that our sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. And as Horatio Spafford said, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. That's good news. In that way, Jesus Christ, as He saves us from our sin, becomes everything to us. The message of the cross consumed Paul's ministry. Paul said it was his only boast. And on top of that, Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, lists one of the characteristics of those who are genuine believers, that they glory in Christ Jesus. That is, they boast in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is what they are excited about, is our love, our confidence, our joy, and our delight. Peter affirmed, When he wrote to the scattered churches that they love Jesus. He said, though you have not seen Him now, you love Him with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. Jesus Christ should be the object of your affections. And so I ask you this year, will you make 2007 a year where you love Jesus Christ? I would love for a church body to be those who love Christ. So I think about loving Jesus. I think about the story of the sinful woman who invited herself to the home of the Pharisee. She heard that Jesus was invited to this man's home and so she just came right along. And uh, perhaps you remember the story that Jesus was reclined there at the table and she was crying at his feet and weeping and and, and wetting her feet with her tears and and wiping her feet with her hair and, and anointing his feet with perfume and repeatedly kissing his feet. Just demonstrations of love and affection and compassion. And then this Pharisee who invited Jesus here saw this woman, what she was doing, and, and knew that she was probably a prostitute. And said, oh, if this man were really a prophet, he would know the man, a woman who was touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus knew this. He said, okay, listen, Simon, who's a Pharisee. He said, let me tell you a story. There are two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, another owned 50. And they had nothing to repay This owner freely forgave both of them, and Jesus then asked this man, Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? The Pharisee answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said, You rightly judged. And then he explained the situation with this woman. He said in Luke chapter 7, verse 44 and following, he said, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And I guess I just say this in light of this point here. When you see your sin and the forgiveness that Jesus Christ has granted you by faith in Him, your only response of a forgiven sinner is love to the Savior, is love to Jesus. And the cross of Christ will become precious to you. It will consume your thoughts. It will consume your words. It will drive you to praise God and it will drive you to love Him. And I would say this, the more completely you see and understand the significance of the cross of Christ, the more completely you will love the Savior. And so I exhort you, church family, to love Jesus Christ. My second admonition for you is this. Not only love Jesus Christ, second, here you go. Love the Bible. Love the Bible. Now, like my first point, it's a practical way for you really to express your love for God, is by loving His Word. But by this, I simply mean uh, you should have an affection for the Word of God. You should delight in it. You should take pleasure in the truths contained in the Bible. The words of Scripture should give you great joy. In fact, I've gone on to say even that you should love the Bible. You should love what sits in your lap, you should love this book. And you know what? I don't think I'm out of the realm of biblical authority with this. Psalm 119, verse 97. The psalmist says, Oh, how I love thy law. It's my meditation all the day. And earlier in that psalm, in verse 47, he says, I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. And then, almost as if, Worshipping the Scriptures, the psalmist says, and I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love. Lifting my hands up to to your commandments. I love your Word. I love the Bible. And repeatedly throughout the Scriptures, there are constant words in the Scripture that speak about how we ought to have a desire and affection and a pursuit of the Scripture. Perhaps you remember in Psalm chapter 1, the psalmist says, How blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And so when I say love the Bible, it's not something that's hard for you to do. It ought to be something you say, yeah, I love the Bible and I delight in it. If you delight in it, you will be blessed. In fact, that's exactly what Psalm 112 verse 1 says. How blessed is a man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. David tells us in Psalm 19 that, that the law of the Lord is perfect. It restores the soul. And he says then this, how the scripture is more desirable than gold. And it's sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. You take your best Christmas dessert that you had and enjoyed this past week. And uh, the Bible should have more affection in your heart than that has. Because it is sweet. It is good. The money that's in your wallet, this is more desirable than gold. You should love it. Paul wrote in Romans 7, even in the midst of struggling with his sin, he said he delighted in the law of God, Romans 7.22. Job said, I've treasured the words of his mouth more than necessary food. In other words, this is is better than my lunch today. This is better than my midnight snack. It's better, guys, than ice cream. I've desired this more than my necessary food. And I love the way Peter pictures it. He says, uh, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. And so, I don't think I, I'm any way overstepping the scriptures to say you should love your Bible. The Bible's like a letter written from a faraway loved one. What soldier stationed in Iraq doesn't love and cherish the letter written to him by his wife? And, Rebecca, do you like it when a letter comes from Brad? You love it! And that's what I'm saying, that's what the Bible is. The Bible is God's word written to us, which is a letter. It instructs us, it helps us, it encourages us, it warns us, it ought to be precious to us. It tells us what we need to know about God. It tells us what we need to know about ourselves, what we need to know about Christ and, and everything He did, is his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his intercessory role right now. It tells us how we ought to live. It warns us of the consequences of failing to trust Him. And the Scripture even goes beyond this. It, it tells us, it gives us a perspective of how God looks at the world. It encourages us through the failings of the saints. As they have failed, we see that God is still faithful to them and forgives them and restores them and helps them. The Scriptures tell us where to find strength to endure hard times. In His Word receive promises of, of God's covenant love towards us that we can rest on, that we can trust on. And and these things really give us reason to love the Bible. And so I encourage you, make it a New Year's resolution for yourself to love the Bible. That can manifest itself in in many, many different ways. I mean, it can take an in-depth study of a portion of Scripture, John 17 and the High Priestly Prayer, or the Sermon on the Mount, or some epistle, Ephesians. And you can love the Bible by studying it really deeply in some small parts. Or you can... Love the Bible by just listening to it read. Right? Have, have tapes or CDs. You're just listening to the Bible because you're loving the Bible. You can love the Bible by listening to preaching or, or by reading through books that explain the Scriptures. Or it can take the form of, of memorizing. You can love the Bible by memorizing it or by meditating upon it or by thinking upon it. At very least, though, if you love the Bible, surely there's going to be some kind of daily commitment to have some intake in the Word of God. If you're lacking for a plan this year to love the Bible, I want to present before you a, a plan to read through the Scriptures. We have a Bible reading schedule in the back table every year at Rock Valley Bible Church, last three, four, five years. We've given you schedules to look and to read through the Scriptures. And this is a schedule that my family's going to follow. It's a, based upon a Robert Murray McShane he put together in 1843. Just has got some Old Testament readings, some New Testament readings each day. And in addition to this, I've also purchased um, this book called For the Love of God, which is uh, written by D.A. Carson. And uh, what this does is it follows that Bible reading plan. And on a specific day, it's got the Bible reading that you do there, and then he comments uh, from a biblical theological perspective about just even that passage of Scripture. And uh, what I've done is I've bought some of these books, and I'm going to give it first of all to those guys who said, you know what? I'm going to do this and I'm going to meet together with you, Steve, with accountability, just kind of read through this together. So I'm just going to share our life, our family's devotions with these men and just say, what is it you've read through the scriptures, what you've learned? And what has this book helped you with? And if there's some left over, if you're interested, maybe not meeting with me, men, uh, maybe some women might want, might want to have this book and just read it. You can talk to me. Maybe we can order some more books. Maybe you can order some. But this is all done with the whole goal and purpose for you to increase in your love for God. In fact, Look at the title of this book, For the Love of God. Right. The aim of this book is this, as you read through the scriptures, and as D.A. Carson helps to teach you and show you how it is that uh, the whole plan of the Bible fits together and the glorious story of it, what's it going to do? It's going to increase in your love for God. It's my premise, right? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength is to love Jesus and is to love His Word. Well, let's turn to my third point. My third point is this, love the body. Love the body. By this, I simply mean to love the people of the church. Love the people of this church. One of the characteristics I would long to see from our church is that we would be a body of people that have a deep, genuine love for one another. And, And that really is an application of what Jesus says here, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Who are your neighbors? Those who are sitting around you are your neighbors, My heart's desire is that you would love the body. You know, and the Scriptures are packed with admonitions for us to love one another. I mean, I'll just go through a few of them. To the Romans, to the Roman church, the church in Rome, Paul said, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. He said in Romans 13, verse 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. To the Galatians, Paul wrote, of how the fruit of the Spirit was love, right? How it interacts and brings about in the life of the church. To the Colossians, Paul showed the priority of love in the body, saying beyond all these things, right? Compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience. He says, beyond all those things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. First Corinthians 13 is a love chapter. The context is church members who are called to love one another. And Paul would even be so bold as to highlight a priority of love in First Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. The goal of our instruction, among other things, is love from a pure heart. He says, by the end, when we get to everything down, he says, the end of what we want is we want love. That's the goal of our instruction, is love. Paul wasn't the only biblical writer who emphasized love. Peter wrote to the scattered churches and commanded them to fervently love one another from the heart. Literally there, it's stretchingly love one another, right? You go and you stretch yourself, you know, bring yourself to the point of exhaustion in loving other people. Peter later said, above all, again, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers the multitude of sins, right? Stretch yourself. The Apostle John is called the Apostle of Love. His writings are filled with exhortations to love one another. i just give you a few. 1 John 3.11 This is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another. I mean, throughout the New Testament, oftentimes, love one another, love one another. So it makes sense to love the body. But oftentimes, even, it uh, is linked how crucial this commandment is because it fulfills the law. Romans 13, verse 8, He who loves his neighbor fulfills the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of a law. Galatians 5.14 The whole law is fulfilled in one word in this statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And So the Scriptures really abound with instructions for us to love one another. Just over and over and over and over again. Almost placing us the priority. The centrality of love. The priority of love. For The Scripture speaks to that. Now, what does it look like? What does it look like to love the body? I think there are many answers to that question. And um, you know, I think you could talk about how you sacrificially serve others. You, you um, give up your own to help somebody. You be with somebody. You encourage them. You say good things to them. You help them. You, whatever it takes, right? You look at your interest the others, and there's lots of practical ways to do that. I, I want to tell the story, of, though, of John Fawcett, who really showed one great way in which he loved the body. John Fawcett was born of poor parents in England in 1740. So 1740, okay, you think about it. That's a great awakening. In fact, he was converted at age 16 by George Whitfield, And uh, 10 years later, at the age of 26, he entered the ministry and uh, began to pastor a small, impoverished congregation in a place called Wainsgate in North England. And after spending several years in Wainsgate in his ministry where his salary was meager... His family was growing and things were kind of tight with him. And he received a call to a large, influential church in London. And um, he thought about how much it would help his family financially. He thought about how you know, it would be good, prestigious. He had more opportunity for impact, you know, more people. And So he accepted the call to go to London. At this church in Waynesgate, he preached his farewell sermon. And he packed up all his belongings upon his wagons and was ready to travel south down into London where he would then be a pastor of this large, prestigious church. And so people were saying goodbye to him and he was breaking their hearts. They were breaking his heart. His wife finally even said to him, John, I cannot bear to leave these people. I I do not know how to go. And John Fawcett said, nor can I. And so he unpacked his wagons moved back into his home and remained in that small congregation. He loved that congregation. And throughout the rest of his life, he had other offers to leave the congregation over the years, but he refused them all. Instead, he remained there for more than 50 years on a humble salary because his heart was committed to love the people of that congregation. The next Sunday, after he made this commitment to remain there as a pastor of this small church, he shared the following hymn text that he wrote for his congregation. Here's the hymn text he wrote. He said, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Before our Father's throne we pour our ardent prayers. Our fears, our hopes, our aims are won, our comforts and our cares. We share each other's woes, our mutual burdens bear." And often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. He's talking about love is what he's talking about. He's talking about binding our hearts in Christian love. He's talking about praying for one another, right? Before our Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers. He says our fears and our hopes and our aims are one. Our comforts are one. Our cares are one. I just hear Paul in Romans chapter 12, right? Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. When one member of our body rejoices, 1 Corinthians 12, we all rejoice. When one member hurts, we all hurt. Just a a united, burden-bearing church. That's what love is. Love is the pastor who had set his love for his people beyond his own earthly pleasures. And let me just say, even at this point, by way of parenthesis, you know, I don't have any desire to be anywhere else than Rockford, Illinois, among you all. I, I just don't. I don't have a desire to climb some ecclesiastical ladder. Um, though sometimes I, I am pretty jealous of pastors who have served in one place for like a decade and then they go to another place and nobody's heard any of their sermons. So the end time they're in a crunch, they can just pick their sermons up. I have envied those men before, but... I just don't have a desire to go someplace. The only reason I'd leave here is because you either kick me out or because you send me someplace, a missionary, or you send me to plant some other place. But other than that, uh, I talked to Ivan about this a little bit last night. What a privilege it would be to serve you all for 50 years. Um, think about being 80, 80 years old, um, and uh, having served in one place, in one congregation for 50 years. What a what a joy that would be to us. And that's really our heart and our desire, our commitment to you. And that's what loving the body is. It means setting the interests of others above your own. It means the people of the church willing to set aside their own comforts and their own desires and goals and efforts for somebody else's, right? Who really are, are theirs because they share in that so much. And so I simply ask you this, right? Is your How are you doing? How are you doing? Is your heart set upon other people? so set upon them that their desire is your desire and you do what you can do to meet their desires and help them. You know, this winter, a ladies' Bible study is going to be going through this book by Cynthia Heald, a Bible study on becoming a woman who loves. The book contains really practical advice of how it is that um, you can love other people and so you ladies. I encourage you to get a copy of this book. Talk to Yvonne. And get a copy of this book. Be involved in that Bible study. It's all it's about, right? Focusing upon how it is that you can love others. Well, <clears throat> we come to our fourth point here. My final admonition to you, right? Love Jesus Christ. Love the Bible. Love the body. And here's my fourth point: love the lost. Love the lost at this point, I need to demonstrate a bit of care. I'm not talking about loving the world nor the things in this world. I'm talking about loving those in the world who are lost apart from God and on their way to eternal destruction. How I long for each of us to have the heart that Paul did for his own people. In Romans chapter 9, he said, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Presumably it's because he loved these people and he had sorrow in their heart because of where they were headed. They were headed straight to the pits of hell because they didn't believe Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. In other words, Paul had such a heart for his countrymen that he was willing to spend eternity in hell if it meant that his countrymen could spend eternity with God in heaven. That was the extent of his love for his people. In Romans 10, he said this way, Romans 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them, for Israel is for their salvation. He longed for the fellow Israelites to be redeemed from the path they were currently treading. I believe He had a love for them. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about loving the lost. Right? Have a love for those who are perishing. Have a heart that they would come to faith in Christ. Yet Jesus had sorrow in His heart when potential followers refused to repent of their sin and follow Him, He lamented over Jerusalem, 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 who kills the prophets and stones those who are out to send her. Right? Great sin. I mean, you kill the prophets who God sends to you. He could have said, and I hate you too. What did he say though? No, no, no. Tender compassion in his heart. He said, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus looking for eternal life, Mark tells us that Jesus felt a love for him. That he was lost and unwilling to give up his riches to follow Jesus. And when I say you should have a love for the lost, I mean that you should be willing to give up your time and your resources to help others. To help others who aren't in Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his listeners, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We're never to pay back evil for evil, but we're to overcome evil with good. And Jesus demonstrated how that looked. He put forth a scenario. He said, someone slaps you on the right cheek. What are you supposed to do? Everyone knows what you supposed to do. Turn your left. Someone sues you, wants to sue you. What should you do? <laughs> well, if he wants to take your shirt, you give him your coat also. Whoever forces you to go to one mile with him, what do you do? You go two miles with him. And now certainly in light of The context in which these instructions were given. They were given in the Sermon on the Mount. There is a degree of hyperbole here in these words. But you can't get away from the fact that Jesus tells us to extend a kindness and a love for our enemies. And that would certainly include those who are lost in their sins. And I'm not saying we should run with them in their sin. No, you shouldn't. I'm not saying that we should love their wicked activities. We shouldn't. I love the way Jude puts it at the end of his epistle. He says, Have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. On some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So you picture, here, here they are, living in the flesh, sinning, and you hate their clothes on them. But you have mercy upon them with fear, desiring to save them out of the fire. That's a great picture of how you, how you can love your enemy. Now, to seek to illustrate this point, I I could do no better than what Jesus gave. Turn over to Luke chapter 10. and uh, We won't come back to Matthew 22. We'll just stay here in Luke chapter 10 the the rest of the time. We're almost done. The context here is a little bit different than in Matthew chapter 22, and yet the teaching is the same. I referred to this earlier in my message about the expert in the law coming to Jesus um, seeking eternal life. It says in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Right here, the expert in law had come to the right person to ask the right question. He'd come to the perfect person to ask the perfect question with. If anyone could give the correct answer about doing something to get eternal life, it was Jesus. And rather than answering the question himself, Jesus did what he often does. He just turns it and says, Okay, well, here you go. Let's do this. He said, Then what's written in the law? How does it read to you? And so this man, this lawyer said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And I hope that sounds familiar to you. That's exactly what Jesus said later in His ministry. These are the greatest commandments. There's none greater than these. And Jesus told him, verse 28, Yes, you've passed the test. You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. He said, Yeah, you're right. And affirming this, the lawyer, affirming the lawyer in this way, I think that Jesus had several motives. I think, first of all, I wanted to encourage this man who gave a great answer to the question that Jesus set before him. But I think also Jesus wanted to press upon this man the difficulty in doing what he had just presented. I mean, it's true that if you lived up to these things, eternal life would be earned by him, but you simply can't do that. It's impossible to love the Lord. This completely, It's impossible to love your neighbor the same love as you love yourself. As helpful as these commands are, ultimately they do lead to frustration apart from the saving work of Christ on the cross. But this lawyer, he didn't get it. He, he, he didn't get it. <clears throat> he wanted to justify himself to show how he had done this. And talking about this horizontal command, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? At this point, Jesus launched into a great illustration demonstrating how it is that we ought to love the lost. Jesus replied and said, A man, verse 30, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That road from Jerusalem down to Jericho, it's about 20 miles, steep descent. It's a road that was commonly traveled back and forth. And it went down to Jericho, fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest, right? A righteous person was going down on that road and we saw him. He passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw this wretched enemy Samaritan, he passed on the other side. This wretched Jew, uh, I'm sorry, this this man who was stripped and beaten, passed on the other side. But here's a Samaritan, right? an, An enemy of the Jews. One, the Jews and the Samaritans just didn't have conflicts. I mean, you think about racial tensions? These are like racial tensions increased 20-fold. Jews and Samaritans had no dealings with each other. They saw each other as unclean. a Samaritan on the journey came upon him, and we saw him. Here it is. He felt compassion. That is, he loved him. And he came to him, bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. He put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these, Jesus then said to this lawyer, Do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robbers? And he said, Well, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said, Go and do the same How is it that we ought to love the lost? We ought to help them. And Jesus is basically saying, you you take this command to love your neighbors yourself. He's talking about someone you don't even know who is a, a social enemy of yours. If there is a need, you love them. And you help them. And you serve them. And in this case, the extent to which two days' wages were given over to the health and the care of this person. right? You help them. Care for them. Serve them in times of distress, even if they're your enemies. Now, certainly it's important to bring the gospel to those outside of Christ. But the gospel, apart from a demonstration of love, will ultimately fall in empty years. It's loving with, with word only, rather than loving in deed and truth. Those both ways. James talked one time about the poor among you. And he said, if a brother or sister is out clothing and need a daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. But you don't give them what's necessary for their body. He says, what use is that? He says, rather love them and help them and serve them and feed them and clothe them. And these words really press the importance of our love ought to be demonstrated in intangible ways. Even to the lost. Now, admittedly, when you think about this for any length of time, you're going to realize your abilities to help and serve those around you and need the gospel are quickly depleted. When you just think about your neighborhood, I mean, you can only go three or four houses deep and all of a sudden you're like, you can't do anything beyond that in, in many ways. You think about your love to the people, of the church. Opportunities for service here abound. As you love people, as you know them, you can serve them. And um, at some point, you need to start prioritizing your your efforts because none of us are infinite. Got news for you: none of us are infinite. You need to prioritize your things. And I think Galatians six nine and ten helps us in the priority here. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. He says, "You just keep doing good, help others, serve others." So then, he says in verse 10 of Galatians 6, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are the household of faith. So if you're looking to prioritize, prioritize the body, prioritize the church, is what he's saying. Love the body, but he says, don't neglect the lost, lost while you have opportunity. Do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. <clears throat> right? You, you, can't, you can't do good to your entire neighborhood. To everybody you meet along the street. You can't do good to everybody completely. But it is crucial for you to have a heart that is willing to serve unsaved neighbors all around you and unsaved people all around you. It's crucial to demonstrate your care and service and love for those who are lost with whatever energy and resources you have. So I just say, how are you doing loving the lost? May the Lord convict us where we need to be convicted. May He forgive us where we need to be... Forgiven may change us or we need to be changed and may give us a heart for the lost. Well, I want to close my message this morning by envisioning in my mind a, a conversation that, 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 that takes place someplace in Rockford. Someplace, sometime in the future. I don't know who this conversation is with. The two people. One of these per- people know nothing about Rock Valley Bible Church. <clears throat> Absolutely Nothing. Heard about it, maybe. The other is a bit more detailed. Maybe it's come and attended church for a little bit, or maybe simply visited once. Uh, perhaps this person has read our website, listened to a bunch of sermons. Maybe this person, uh, you know, knows someone who attends this church. So you know, in a secondary level, maybe knows something about Rock Valley Bible Church. But the the one who knows nothing says, "Say, hey, what do you know about this Rock Valley Bible Church? What do you know about this church?" And I'm envisioning in this conversation that the person who knows a little bit about the church says this. He says, well, there are lots of ways you might describe a church. You could describe it in terms of the programs, in terms of its size, in terms of its ministries, or lack of ministries, or its worship style, or its missionary emphasis, or its pastoral, pastor's personality. You can describe it lots of different ways. But when I think about Rock Valley Bible Church, what little I know about it, I, I just think about their love. That's the thing that blows me away. I think about Rockefeller Bible Church. I think about their love. Particularly, I think about their, their love for God. I, I see it in the way they love Jesus Christ. In my interactions with those in the church, they are very aware of the saving grace of Christ that's led them to love Him so much. The grace of Christ is abundant, and they see it, and they know It seems like all they can talk about is the cross of Christ and their great love for the Savior, and they actually boast in the cross of Christ all the time. You know, I see, I see how they love the Scriptures also. I mean, these people are people of the book. They love reading and studying and memorizing and meditating upon the Bible. They love learning about the Bible. When they gather, the Bibles always center in their gatherings. The truth of the scriptures is always their focus. But, but apart from their love for God in these ways, I also see they have a tremendous love for other people. I mean, the strength of their love for one another knows no bounds I mean, I've seen some of them make incredible sacrifices for each other. They've helped each other financially. They've helped each other in time of sickness and and in need. And that has just abounded. They have a love for the lost of this world as well. The saving message of the gospel is always on their lips. But it's more than mere words. I, I see them loving indeed as well. They're a church that loves God and loves other people. That's the kind of conversation I would love to see take place sometime in Rockford that I don't know nothing about. But if people look upon the characteristics of those of Rock Valley Bible Church, they say they love God, they love other people. And they show that love for God, their love for Jesus Christ, and their love for the Bible. And they love other people. They show that love for the body and the love for the lost. Oh, may that conversation take place here in Rockford. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would strengthen us for these days. I pray that You would increase our love to Jesus Christ. I pray that You would increase our love for Your Scriptures. I pray You'd increase our love for one another. I pray You'd increase our love for for those who are apart from Christ, who desperately need a Savior, who need to come to the knowledge of Him, and need to embrace Him, And I pray, Lord, that as we think about 2007, I pray that some people in this room might make even a conscious effort of making these four loves, two loves in four ways, their their heart and their resolutions this next year. So I pray, God, that You would give these things to us and help us in these things and strengthen us as we face another year. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. by singing hymn number 634. 634 is a uh, hymn that just says everything. More love.